Welcome to Guilty as Charged, the law behind the crimes. Exploring law and public policy relevant to criminal law here in Arizona, where nothing is out of bounds and all perspectives are considered. Welcome to Guilty as Charged. We're excited to be hosting another episode of our podcast focused on Arizona criminal law, where we talk about issues big and small and everything in between that affect the criminal justice system here in Arizona. Today, we're going to be talking about actually a really broad issue. We won't get into too many of the minor details, but we're going to be talking about sentencing, something that really drives a lot of what we do within the criminal justice system. But of course, we're always looking for more guests and more topics. The criminal justice community in Arizona is pretty small, and so we tend to know each other. If you have a legal or policy issue related to criminal law that you think is interesting, there are probably others out there dealing with it or are also interested in it. Feel free to reach out to me on Twitter or email me or shoot me a text and we can do an episode about whatever it is that you're thinking would be interesting. Of course, please remember that the views and opinions that we express here today are our own, that we are not speaking on behalf of any of our clients, employers, or anybody else that we are affiliated with. So jumping right in, we have Zach Murphy with us today. Um, As always, we try to keep the bios pretty short, but Zach, who was a prosecutor at the county attorney's office, the Maricopa County Attorney's Office, for about seven years, and he has been in private defense work for the last 14 or so years. He owns his own firm and is a busy criminal defense attorney. Thanks for being on, Zach. Thanks for having me, Jake. I appreciate it. So we're excited to talk today about sentencing, and so we're just going to jump right in sentencing tends to be very state specific and so it's a perfect thing to discuss on our podcast we are obviously going to be focused on sentencing here in arizona but zach tell us real quick so if you could break down sentencing for us i know it's a it's a huge question a very a very broad topic but if you had to break it down just a little bit how does sentencing work in arizona well i think you missed the first step the first step would be plea negotiation, because that really drives what your sentence is going to look like and what the judge might be able to do at sentencing, especially when you're dealing with felonies. So really, you know, most cases resolve via a plea, usually over 95%. So really, the first step is, okay, what does the plea agreement look like? And what might the judge be able to do? But when the plea agreement's negotiated, the prosecutor has in mind what sentencing would look like, for example, after trial or with the plea. So it's uh, not a real complicated process, but there's a couple steps in there, if that makes any sense. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I definitely agree with you that plea negotiation becomes an important part of this. At the same time, what the law allows or requires becomes an important part of how plea negotiation would work, of course. And so, for example, if, you know, talking about the extreme of the extreme, if if we're talking about a capital case and the law allows the death penalty, then that's going to drive the plea negotiation. Or if the law only allows, you know, going all the way down to a, you know, a low level misdemeanor and the law maximum that the law allows is 30 days, that could also affect the plea negotiation. So, if you could kind of break it down in, in that sense, maybe even before we get to plea negotiation, what the law allows or requires, uh, and I guess in Arizona, do we have 
mandatory minimums. Yeah, that, I think the I think the phrase is mandatory sentencing, basically, probably the best way to describe it. And it certainly exists in Arizona, more so for people who have a, a history of criminal convictions, then it really reveals itself and it really amps up the stakes for, for somebody. So if you have recent felony convictions and you get charged with a new felony, and let's say you take that new felony to trial, mandatory sentencing is going to become involved and the judge is going to have to follow that, whether they like it or not. And Arizona is particularly more uh, potent than most states, I would say. Yeah, it seems like I read a couple of years ago that we had more people in prison in Arizona or longer prison sentences. I can't remember exactly what the article was about then, but they ranked us as like the third harshest state, if you wanted to use that word. So yeah, it does seem like you're, you're right about our relative position there. So what is a judge looking at? Let's, let's use this, you know, you used, gave the example of a felony, which I think most of your practice is with felonies. I don't know if you want to talk about like a certain example crime, but how does the judge, and again, I know we'll get into the, the plea negotiations here in a second, but what does the law allow or require? Does the judge, can the judge do whatever they want? Do they just put a minimum in? Do they put a maximum in? How does that work on a, on a felony? Basically for felonies, there's only a few felonies where, you know, probation's mandatory. That's usually what you would call Prop 200 offenses where, you know, a simple possession, drug cases, maybe minus methamphetamine. And you got real, no real history or violent history or prior drug history. The, the court has to give you probation and then they can ramp it up for a second similar simple possession felony, add some jail or whatever. Those situations are rare. They don't present themselves too often. If you just commit a felony like a home burglary or something and you have no history, the judge can give you prison, but they're not obligated to. They can give you probation. They're not obligated to. That's up to them. But most people are looking at probation for their first felony if they're convicted, you know, nine times out of ten. But if, like, for example, you have no history and a firearms involved and you get convicted of a dangerous offense in Arizona, prison is mandatory. So the judge has to send you to prison even if they thought probation would be appropriate. Okay, so in Arizona, when you're looking at a felony, typically probation is available but not required. So it's up to the discretion of the judge. And that's on a first offense or... Yeah, usually, you know, all first offenses minus, you know, like dangerous type offenses. So, but I think most judges want to not send someone to prison for their first felony running, right? So, they're most likely going to give someone probation, I would say. Okay. Now, how would it look differently if it was their second felony offense that they were looking at? Well, that would depend on the plea obviously if it, the plea is going to require prison but after trial for example if you commit two home burglaries one in the past and then you went to trial on a new one and they were historical or related in time the judge would have to give you prison and there would be a higher category of prison range that he would have to follow okay so so after and just so I'm understanding, so on a felony, anything after your first 
then it's not within the judge's discretion in Arizona. We require those people to go to prison, typically, I should say. because Yeah, it depends. It depends on when the prior conviction happened. And then it gets complicated, I would say. Okay. But the idea is if you have what they call historical felonies and, and you're committing a new felony, what they want is prison and they're going to elevate that prison range. That's the idea from the state legislature. Okay. And like you said, you know, obviously we'll, we'll get into plea negotiations here in just a second. I'll, another very broad and important topic as it relates to sentencing. But if we're talking about what the legislature requires after trial, kind of the time in prison goes up, the more historical prior felonies that you have. Is that fair to say? Yes. And then now kind of getting into the nitty gritty of let's just focus on one offense. So like you gave the example of a home burglary, which I believe is a class three felony in Arizona. And this is your second time that you've been convicted of of a felony. And the other one is historical. What are the requirements on the judge at that point? You know, not necessarily giving examples of years, though, if that helps, you know, if you want to talk about that, that's fine. But in that sentence or in that situation, is the judge not able to give, how does the judge determine how much time to give if this is after a trial? Well, he pulls out the sentencing chart and there's three categories and this thing has really not changed for many years. So you can't memorize the ranges, but they pull out the sentencing chart, which is broken down to the level of felonies between class twos and sixes. Class ones, I believe, are like first degree murder, et cetera. And he'll just follow the chart, determine if you have no historical felonies, one, two, and then he'll just, you know, follow the chart at the top along the side and he'll have a range. So, for example, if you committed a, a burglary and were convicted of that in, say, 2015, committed another one, this year, for example, and got convicted after trial, the judge would be looking at the sensing chart and then be like, well, uh, you know, the presumptive where I start would be six and a half years. I could go up to 16.25 or down to over three, something like that. I, I can't, I don't even know the, the numbers and then come out with a sentence, but they're presumed to start at the presumptive. That's why they call it the presumptive should be like six and a half, but it's crazy. Wow. It can go all the way up to 16 and in a quarter. I mean, it seems like an arbitrary number, but that's what the chart says. So they pull out the chart basically. Okay. And so, and it just gives a range of wherein the judge can, can sentence within this chart. And, and is this exactly. chart from the legislature or is this chart, where does this chart come from? The legislature. And well, they write the laws and then we do these charts so it makes it easier to interpret what they wrote. So, oh, yeah. but, the, uh, but the numbers and, and the, the numbers, like you- they haven't changed in ages and they come from the legis- legislature. I can't say that word, legislature. Okay. So that's basically a a felony. You look at what level of felony it is, you look at how many priors, and then the judge has a chart that they can determine what their sentencing range could be. And typically, does the judge, I know in some states, the judge sentences them to a range. In Arizona, does at sentencing, does the judge choose to say what the range is, or does the judge choose a specific sentence 
within that range or a time a specific number of years within that range no they in the end they they have to impose a specific number within a range and so at least in state court federal court they have to determine the guideline range technically at sentencing and 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 rule that that's the guideline range as it relates to the particular defendant but in state court they don't impose like, okay, you're going to go to prison anywhere from five to 10 years. And then if you do well, well, you can get off and or get out in six years. They have to give a specific number. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, that's perfect. And not having never practiced in federal court, and we don't really do much of that here on this podcast, but that's a perfect counterexample to how it would be done here in Arizona, where it is a specific range. Now, of course, we're not going to talk too much today about misdemeanors might be a little bit outside of this, but it is important to understand that misdemeanors are kind of, they're very different from the way that felonies are are handled. And with misdemeanors, the law just gives a maximum and absent some other requirement from the legislature, the judge has complete discretion from giving nothing up to that maximum. And so for a class three misdemeanor, you can get, you know, up to 30 days in jail on a class one misdemeanor would be the most severe in Arizona. You can get up to six months in jail. But again, the judge could give up, you know, down to nothing. They could just say, okay, I found you guilty and there's going to be no sentence whatsoever. So it's very different than how we handle our, our felony. But so turning back now, you know, you had talked about plea negotiations. How does the legislative or that chart, that sentencing chart that you talked about, but the legislative possible sentence how does that affect plea negotiations then well the prosecutor knows what the chart says or what the outcomes would be after trial probably better than defense attorneys to be honest with you so they know exactly in most every case they can figure it out fairly quickly what someone might be looking at after trial when they open up a case, right, a prosecutor, the first thing they're going to do is look at someone's criminal history probably before they read, like, through the police report, see what the case is about. So they, you know, they know it like the back of their hand almost. And so they they have their own policies, right, over at their office and how to try to treat people consistently. But they take a look at it and they come up with a, a plea offer. And, and they're entitled to determine what that offer is because. They're their own branch of government, and the court can influence their plea offer. Uh, us defense attorneys can try to plead with them, negotiate with them to consider alternatives, but it's their prerogatives what they offer. So as a defense attorney, do you find that you're spending more of your time making recommendations to a plea to the judges, or do you find that you're spending more of that time working with the prosecutor to try to come up with the favorable plea way more time with the prosecutors way more time so most cases resolve through plea agreement like i mentioned but we're constantly dealing with prosecutors and basically by email there's no real phone call contact anymore you'll see them in court and stuff you can talk to them about a case but usually it's when that case is on the calendar that day and you're both there. That's when you really talk about it. But it's mainly emailing, and it's you're constantly speaking with them about cases, and but almost exclusively about you know, please, what can we do to resolve this case? 
because we got a million other cases. So And so when you're thinking about resolution of a case, kind of like you, you started out with the, this negotiation or discussion with the prosecutor is kind of your main focus on the case. Yes. And they're going to make a plea offer in most, in all cases, pretty much, you know, it's like minus homicides and, or, you know, murder type cases, capital cases, but they'll make their, you know, it's just the nature of the system and business. They're going to make a plea offer. And so you're going to expect that. Sometimes they just send you one over. Other times you ask for one, they can change. Sometimes they, you miss out on it and then it gets worse. I mean, that can happen. So it, it's a lot of work and there's a lot of different variables, but it depends really on the case, like not the lawyers necessarily. It's more about, okay, what happened in the case? What's the person's criminal background, but what's the person's circumstances personally or otherwise that might have led to this situation? Now, when you're talking to the prosecutor, we, you know, we kind of talked about how the law ties a judge's hand, so to speak. So assuming you go to trial, the person is found guilty, depending on what level of felony it is or and how many priors they might have, it kind of gives the judges, here's the range that you can sentence somebody within. Are there similar things that tie a prosecutor's hands? So, for example, can a prosecutor give probation even if somebody has... A historical prior or more or two or three yeah absolutely they have authority over that and it happens all the time so they they can do a lot they can do a number of things they have a lot of uh power okay so when you're talking to a prosecutor you're not necessarily bound by those same sentencing guidelines we talked about before you can you pretty much have yeah they can whatever available to you like they can structure a plea agreement that's legal that's a binding contract that the court will follow that, you know, takes it out of the mandatory sentencing scheme, so to speak. So someone's looking at 20 years in prison because they have historical felonies, they committed a new serious felony, they can still offer probation by structuring a plea agreement that takes all those prior convictions out of it. And it's really easy to structure these plea agreements and make them legal so that the judge will follow them at sentencing, even though they can technically reject them. But that's super rare that they reject, you know, plea agreements that the defendant and the state have reached. Okay. Now, you know, you, you, you talked about how much time you spend on, on these kinds of issues and on uh, negotiations to try to resolve a case. You've come up with you know, some software or a program that helps you in that. Well, can you talk to us a little bit about Leniency Pro? Yes, I uh, I started Leniency Pro a couple years ago. It's a software for criminal defense attorneys. And I handle a lot of, I've been doing this too long. I have a lot of clients at one time and it's a lot of work. And like I had mentioned, you got to deal with the prosecutors and, and their offices constantly. So, it's hard to communicate with them effectively sometimes. And what you propose for a, a plea agreement, for example, you know, they want to see more. And so I developed a software that comes up with all sorts of creative factors or categories that would apply to a person or their case that a defense attorney necessarily wouldn't think of 
and wouldn't know if it would resonate or not with anybody like the prosecutor or the judge. And so I developed the software. I use it in my own cases with prosecutors, kind of creates a report or presentation with all these ideas, et cetera. I've also used it with the judges in courts and I've gotten or received positive feedback on it. So it's just a better way of communicating, a more efficient way of communicating. It's good for defendants in that they're being represented on a higher level. They're getting heard more so by the prosecutor or the judge. And and it's it's supposed to reduce sentences, so to speak, or give people better better pleas or better sentences than they normally would receive. And it's worked. So is this software that you said it creates a report? So it's like aggregating information that you put into it to create a report that you can then, like I think you said, use it either with a prosecutor or with a judge? Yeah, we're over, you know, defense attorneys are overloaded just like prosecutors. So this software makes it real easy to, in a timely fashion, put together something that's more uh, concise, more thoughtful, and easier to to follow, more impactful. And it's just a link. You click on it. It's like a nice little presentation where before you just have these emails going back and forth where there's not a lot of thoughts or communication going on. You know, no one wants to read. A, and we don't do like 10-page single-spaced requests for plea offers, you know, for someone because we just don't. I mean, most people have been doing this a long time and they know what to look for and what they they don't want to read a lot. Prosecutors are the judges. Judges are overlo- overloaded as well, but they know what to look for. And this is really shortened and easy to follow. Or you can make it very lengthy and involved. It allows you to do that as well. So who inputs the information? Is, is a defense attorney that, that uses this software? Are they going to go in and historically, like you said, you would sit down at a computer, open up a Word doc and type in you know, a few pages of notes about how great the client is. Is it something similar here or how would that, how would Leniency Pro change that? Mostly it's for the, the busy defense attorney to do themselves. But anyone, it's real simple software. So anyone can input the data, but it's a license for the attorney. So when you submit these reports out there, they're coming from the attorney, mm-hmm. their name on it. Because, you know, only attorneys can sign and file pleadings, et cetera, in court. So it's, it's assigned to the attorney. But, it's easy for any attorney to use and probably more effective for the attorney to use on their own because they know like all these categories that might beg for leniency for someone. I mean, the attorney knows what is relevant, what isn't. So about the case or the person when they know what might resonate with a prosecutor as opposed to staff, but the staff can input data input information on the person so and then that information will just get aggregated i guess by the software by leniency pro yeah it gets aggregated it gets tailored then and it gets sent off to the prosecutor and then easy to follow smooth presentation same for the judge you can turn around and send it to the judge you can send it to the judge without the prosecutor you can just use it with the prosecutor up front and the judge never sees it but i mean it you know it's a presentation you reduce it to a PDF or writing and you file it with the court. 
and it looks like uh, what you normally would see. So, plus you can get family involved and you can have them submit through the software video testimonials, audio testimonials, upload documents regarding the defendant, you know, the client as well that you can share with anybody. And then those are easily accessible in the, in the report. So, prosecutor would be sitting in their office and the defendant's mom is giving a video testimonial that the prosecutor listens to while they're deciding what to offer on a plea. And that's, I mean, in all my years as a prosecutor, I don't think I've ever had anybody send me a video testimonial. So that would be unique. Catches your eye a little bit. Yeah. So it's nothing else on the market like it and it's useful. And Zach, I think you said you've been using this for a couple of years on your own. Yeah. In that time, have you found that it's mostly a time saver for you so that you can give better service to your clients? Or do you find that it's improving outcomes and, and reducing, like you're getting more favorable plea offers? Uh, both. You know, I, it's no secret that, you know, the defendants or people that are charged with criminal offenses have histories and they can be pretty hard to deal with sometimes and aren't often happy with their attorney. What are you doing to present my situation? Why are they offering this? Why aren't, you know, what are you doing to get me a better offer? Well, this is what I'm doing. Check this out. And then there's clients that, you know, that, you know, they don't know that I'm using the software to try to help them get a better plea offer because the prosecutor, like I mentioned, they can shave off a year, two years, five years, six years, in in a matter of thinking about the case for five minutes. You never know what's gonna make them do that, you know? So And have you thought of other uses that I mean we talked a lot about sentencing here and that's the focus of, you know, this this particular podcast, sentencing and, and maybe some plea negotiation. But have you considered other places or used it in other ways outside of those two things? And I guess I'm the first thing that comes to my mind is a lot of argument or discussion comes in on pretrial release. Do you think it could work in that such kind of a situation? Totally, totally can. You just you just title or call the report detention hearing memorandum, for example. Yeah, you can use it for any any proceeding in court. However, you know, those are limited. You're not going to use it when you're litigating a legal issue or a factual issue. More when you're presenting mitigation or circumstances of the client, personal circumstances of the client. When those become relevant, then you can use the report. It's a tool. Like you can, you can make it as involved and expansive or comprehensive as you want, or you can just, you know, use it for small select issue like release, for example. Just going to say, going back to, you know, we talked about how in misdemeanors, it's really up to the judge whether to give any kind of a punishment. I mean, they could give a fine, they could give some jail, they could give probation, or they could give nothing. I mean, in there, it, you know, maybe it's more helpful to give it to the judge. And, and, and like you said, you use it with judges with felonies as well, but yeah. You know, it could work any level or any, any level. Kind of yeah, any level judge you can you can send it send it to so that I you know depends on it's not that hard to figure out as far as the technical aspects of it. I don't know how savvy judges are overall with 
technical stuff. They most of them have computers up there with them, and they can easily access the information from there. I don't know. Do the the judges have computers where you work up at the bench? Yeah, yeah, they still have computers. I mean, <laughs> I think COVID highlighted some of our judges' technical abilities and showed them to be lacking a little bit when they were asked to do a telephonic or video hearing and did not like that. But it, it sounds like this is not anything complicated, like setting up a, a Zoom call or something like that. No, sir. So, And Zach, do you, do you see continued movement towards using software like this? Or do you think this is... Like, do you think this is going to become more common? Maybe in the sense that it's more technical. Maybe in the sense that there's a change since the COVID pandemic towards appearing in court less or handling things more digitally, I guess is the word. I don't know. Like, so technical, technical, technical things like this isn't real technical, but different ways of doing what we're used to and moving forward. I I can see a change. I can see other, this is, this is focused on plea negotiation and sentencing, but other stuff like, you know, trials, trials are pretty technical now. There's a lot of audio video equipment that, you know, gets played and the juries get to see it. They have their own screens and it's more interactive, but software related to, for example, a more, you know, technology, technology, more advanced trial with technology and software. I don't know. Maybe I, I'd like, I just, I'm just, this is focused on plea negotiation and sentencing and trying to get people basically trying to keep people behind bars for less amount of time. Yeah. Which is ultimately as a defense attorney, something that you're trying to do for your clients. And that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess, I mean, in some ways you can see it kind of being akin to the use of PowerPoints and closing arguments. I mean, even in the you know few years that I've been practicing, we've kind of gone from almost never to still almost never, but not, not, I see it more and more, I guess is what I would say. It's not common, but it's not, it's not never. Um, and so maybe something like this becomes something that you see more, more regularly, even if it doesn't, I, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see, I guess. As a prosecutor, I'll be curious to watch how many more of these kinds of presentations and reports that I get going forward. Well, I hope that it's just leniency pro and not a bunch of, other ones, you know, that are, because I put a lot of thought into, I mean, there's, it's a lot of, a lot of thought went into what might be a category that is important that relates to leniency for somebody. And because the statutes don't really provide much of anything, Arizona statutes for, for criminal defendants, like, okay, this is this is a mitigating or mitigating factor or personal circumstance that the prosecutor must take into account or the judge must find and it must have some type of po- positive impact for the defendant it really doesn't work that way you got to 
you got to convince people. You got to convince them to use their own discretion, prosecutors and judges. Yeah, I think you're right that there's, I mean, I, I could be wrong, but I think there's about six statutory, statutorily listed mitigating factors. But I mean, we've seen case law expand that, you know, by at least a dozen or two more. And I guess the idea is they're infinite. And so having a, a service like this that kind of reminds you of what kind of mitigation you're looking for. Again, I don't, I'm not a criminal defense attorney, but it seems like it could be helpful. I think Arizona has for felony sentencing the like a catch-all mm-hmm. judge can find mitigation as long as they articulate it. You know, the however what they you know they feel is mitigating that's not specifically listed. So there is that. So basically, you know, you can consider anything mitigating if, even if it's not listed, right? Yeah. And in fact, as you were talking, I just pulled it up and ARS 13701, you're right, the the last of those six factors is any other factor that is relevant to the defendant's character or background or to the nature or circumstance of the crime and that the court finds to be mitigating. So I guess there's really five statutorily listed mitigating factors. And then like you're saying, anything else that the court would want to consider and, and some software like this that could remind defense attorneys some of those different factors that they might want to put into a report it would be definitely beneficial yeah well zach thanks for joining us today anything else about sentencing or leniency pro that you felt like would be helpful for the listeners no i appreciate you let me come on and and talk about it and hopefully i see you soon in the courts i guess yeah it has it has been a little bit since we've seen each other yeah we used to have a few cases together Man, you were difficult to deal with. Tell you. <laughs> no, no, I thought you you were always like really thoughtful and smart. You're a really smart guy. I'll say. Well, thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. You know what? We'll say. You know, I love being able to do this podcast to be able to talk about some of the interesting legal issues that come up. But I also like to highlight how many different areas the criminal law touches. And we've had victims' attorneys come on to talk about how. The, criminal justice system affects victims and restitution. We've had, you know, asset protection managers from stores come in. But, you know, software like this is also important. And I know your your primary job right now is as a criminal defense attorney. But there are people like you coming up with great new products to change the criminal justice system. And so it'll be interesting to see where Leniency Pro goes from here. Maybe we can have you on here in a couple more years and discuss kind of how it's gone and and how much growth you've seen and what changes you've seen from it. So thank you for coming on. Thanks for joining us today on Guilty as Charged. Please subscribe to our podcast to get more great discussion about law and crimes specific to Arizona and also get access to Arizona Supreme Court audio. You can find Jake on Twitter at Jacob Brown AZ. 